Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and in this conversation with Tony Scott, you will hear a little bit of background noise as he is on the move, uh, but I do not think it takes away from the great content he shares, and it's actually not too bad. It's kind of like a passive noise, so just a fair warning for those listening, and I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Tony Scott, and I'm a writer-director. You might know me for my short films Together and or Representation Matters, with a question mark, and uh, currently working on putting together the feature version of the short film Together, which was done as a proof of concept, and we've got some actors attached and finalizing our financing for that right now. Tony Scott, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Nice to be here. Well, it really is our pleasure. You have such a wide-ranging career in, in, in so many different facets of film and in finance and marketing and branding. Uh, we're really excited to, to have this conversation. And you mentioned the film Together. Uh, I watched it. it. It hits home with me personally because um, my father had to go through something similar. And to catch the audience up in the film short film Together, the uh, there's a husband and wife and the wife uh, has um, a health issue and the husband is left to have to make a decision. And there's uh, about, you know, what to do to uh, to move forward, to take the next step, either to basically allow her to die or to risk uh, surgery and, and have her, but not the her he used to know. So uh, it, it, it really sets up quite nicely. And my father, although he didn't have to make that decision, I think there's a moment in the film, Tony, that uh, really touched on the helplessness you feel as people in healthcare are telling you what your options are. And you're looking for, you're searching the world and the universe for some other option that they're not giving you. But time is limited and health is on the line. And so I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you've mentioned that this film is your baby. What yeah. did you mean by that? And why is it your baby? Well, it was, our fir- it was the first narrative film I actually did, I've ever done. So one is that. Secondly, it is about my own parents. And so the everything that you saw in the film pretty much happened almost exactly that way in real life. And we literally had 10 minutes to make a decision that was going to be a ultimately gigantic, life-changing decision for my mother and for our entire family. And uh, so it was, a, it was a very dramatic episode that, it, that people get faced with all the time. And unfortunately, people don't talk about this enough ahead of time. And it's, uh, 
it's something that people need need to be aware of that you could be put into that kind of situation. Anyone from any ethnicity, from any socioeconomic background, this could happen to you. And the so the short was really about just that. And I did the short because I had written a feature of this already, and the feature shows what happens after the decision is made and how other things come into play and create a whole nother layer of, of all sorts of complications, uh, which, you know, is one of my screenwriting instructors at UCLA said, you know, what you really want to do is you want to get your hero out on a limb, the limbs over a cliff, the, the limbs starting to crack and break off the tree and you need to start throwing rocks at them. <laughs> so I think that that's, uh, hopefully I've kind of accomplished that in the feature and the, the proof of concept short because I did that because I got tired of waiting for other people to produce my stuff. Right. And people said, Hey, well, you know, you need to go off and show that you can do something yourself. Why don't you direct something? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I've never directed really anything. And they said, well, you know, you could learn how to do it. You're a smart guy. It's not that hard. And, uh, it's, it's basically about managing people and making decisions on set and beforehand planning really well ahead of time. And those are all things I certainly did many, many years in my business career, uh, is having to make decisions quickly and non-limited information and be able to move something forward. So, you know, from that perspective, it was really good. And because it is very much about my own family, uh, especially the short more so than even than the feature, it is kind of, you know, my baby, if you would. And which is why I had to hire my friend, Jason Olive, the world's first male supermodel to play the role that would be me in the <laughs> short. So just as a little shout out there to Jason, the world's first male supermodel. <laughs> he is much better looking than I am. <laughs> he was, I get to pick who portrays me, right? Yeah, he, he was he was great. And um you mentioned your parents, and I want to go back a little bit, and we will jump around in this interview as, as we like sure. to do here on the Make It Podcast. But uh, I know that your father fought uh, in World War II and, 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 and flew missions in the Philippines there. Yep. What, and growing up in Mississippi, and then, and then having that as, as, as you know, a dad in the military, um, how did that influence your desire to get into this business? And was there, you know, sort of when did, and when did you know you, you had this creative streak? Because it sounds like you started off a little bit in, in finance or going that route. And then you, you took a left turn into the creative realm. Yeah. So, I mean, of course my father wasn't in the military when I grew up. I mean, he fought during World War II, but I heard these stories and there are these, I mean, just incredible stories about things that happened during World War II. I mean, his ship was one of the first ships hit by a kamikaze during the Battle of Leyte Gulf. I mean, just incredible stuff that I heard. And, and you know, he was a great storyteller, and he loved to tell stories, and he could really engage an audience with his stories. And, and so I grew up, you know, hearing all sorts of stories, and I loved to read. And so I, you know, that was my escape from... Mississippi. Not that there's anything wrong with Mississippi, but it's a little bit insular, especially during <laughs> the 60s and 70s. And so I was, you know, always wanting to know about the world outside of this little insular world that I grew up in, which was which was really nice in a lot of ways. But again, it had has its issues. And it's like one of those things. And somebody says, "Oh wow, 
uh, you know, what a great place that would have been to grow up. I have to start, you know, jumping up to, oh, yeah, you know, have no idea how horrible it was. If somebody says something bad about it, I got to defend it. So it's a real interesting kind of love-hate relationship I think a lot of us from places like that have. But in terms of when I, you know, wanted to decide I was going to do this, I mean, I realized when I was younger that I didn't want to be a starving artist. There was a certain lifestyle I aspired to, and I didn't want to, you know, try to get there by being an artist. I was a professional musician, semi-professional musician when I was in high school and college, helped pay my way through school by doing that. And I loved music and I loved, you know, writing, but I didn't see how you could make a living doing that, really. I mean, I knew, I knew how good I wasn't enough to be a... Uh, someone who could make a real living as a professional musician. So the so I decided to go ahead and take the more traditional business path. And so I studied economics undergrad and ended up getting an MBA and working in business, particularly in and around both finance and in Silicon Valley for many years for te- in technology. I was a CEO recruiter for startups and big companies around the world and living part-time in Tokyo and Beijing and London during that period. So I, I you know, met tens of thousands of people, all these you know, very interesting, smart senior executives around the world and was exposed to a lot of stories because of that. A lot of interesting stuff. And I said, wow, I think there's a way to, uh, to start telling people these stories. And when the downturn in 2008 happened, I, my wife and I moved from Silicon Valley up to Napa because at that point, most of the clients that were still paying us were outside of the United States. We didn't really need to be in Silicon Valley. So we figured, hey, we like to eat and drink. Let's go up and you know, try out Silicon Valley of Napa. Maybe we want to retire there one day. And that, that I can tell you that basically cured us of that because heaven is boring and you have to, get, you have to go through hell to get there. So those are people who live in the Bay Area understand what I'm talking about, about how hard it is to get from the core of the Bay Area up to Napa. Uh, and it's a, anyway, it's, it's lots of, you know, after you've eaten through every restaurant and drunk a lot of great wine and gotten fat, um, then there's not a lot else to do. So I said, I'll start trying to write a couple of novels. And I had a couple of really good story ideas about them that were based on true stories and, you know, either myself or people that were friends of mine. And the first Napa Film Festival happened. And we just bought a house very close to downtown Napa and woke up a Saturday morning and said, well, after the Napa Film Festival, we go see some films. And one of the things on the schedule was a pitch competition. Come and pitch your story ideas to a panel of Hollywood executives. Like, okay. So I went over and half an hour later and I pitched and and won. And all these guys went, oh my gosh, can can we read your scripts? And I'm like, uh, they're not quite ready yet. Well, when are they going to be ready? Well, I got to learn how to write a script first. What do you suggest? (laughs) <laughs> so I ended up doing research, ended up finding out that UCLA, both UCLA, the film school and UCLA Extension have very good programs for writing. And so ended up starting taking some of those programs, got into the UCLA Graduate Film School's professional screenwriting program, and uh, then did their writing, professional writing for television program. These are programs that are done in the Graduate Film School at UCLA and uh, enjoyed it. The more I did it, the more I enjoyed it, I started getting uh, winning awards in screenplay competitions and, you know, had a couple of things optioned pretty quickly. And wow, this is great. I'm on, I'm on the path. I figure I'm going to be seeing my movies getting made in no time at all. Ha ha ha. 
So it's uh, so I think I'm you know, so I really made the switch. I was 50 years old, over 50 years old. I was 52 years old when I made that switch when I went back to UCLA. So it's uh, something that you can do. And I encourage people to do it if something you you find something you really enjoy. And if you're in a position to not be a starving artist, uh, that's particularly useful. It's sort of like the wine business. How do you make a small fortune in the wine industry? You start with a big fortune. Uh, it helps if you don't have to uh, work full time to support yourself. And in LA, work to support yourself that means probably working eighty hours a week to be able to afford your rent. And you know, so it's a it's a it's a it's a really tough slog. I see my friends who are who are doing that, and I admire them. And I don't even know where they have the energy to do that, but they do. And those people also can make it too. So I'd say you can't do that, but it's certainly, it's a lot easier to do if you can not worry about where your next meal is going to come from and whether you can pay your rent. And because it gives you also the power to say no to things. And I think that we define ourselves a lot more sometimes by the way, what we say no to than what we say yes to. Right. So, you know, that's, so that's a, it gave me the ability to tell some people that wanted me to do stuff for really cheap as a writer or stuff that I wasn't interested in, say no, you know, and so it's a, it's a totally different thing. And then again, on this whole thing with the, uh, with my father in the military, two things that, that happened were when I did get hired to write a script, a feature script about these American missionaries and doctors and nurses and miners who got trapped on the island of Panay, which is one of the largest islands in the Philippines after the Japanese invaded. And they, instead of turning themselves in, because they knew they'd go be put into prison camps, they actually decided to hide in the jungle. You know, they created this little community called Hopevale, and they were helped by the local Filipinos to hide from the from the Japanese, and ultimately created this this really good, I think, feature story out of that because I had a lot of experience with with what my father had experienced in during World War II. And in fact, when we landed, not in Manila, but the, on the island where we were actually doing the, where all this stuff happened, I was there for research, I realized this, that my father had, fought, had flown off, in and off of that airstrip, so, which was pretty amazing wow. uh, to tie back there. So it's, a, so it's interesting to see how stories come about. And I'm interested in doing stories that are about ordinary people that get put into very unusual circumstances, extraordinary circumstances. They have to act outside of their norm to be able to to make it or try to make it. And to me, that's real heroism. I agree completely. And I wonder what the future of seeing movies that are dramas or rom-coms or just something that isn't uh, IP or a superhero movie come out in the theaters are. I wonder what the future of theaters are in general, but we'll get to that in a little bit. There's so much to dig into with that answer. Uh, I think that on paper, the thing that jumps out about you right away, Tony, is that uh, you were raised in Mississippi, but all your stories have a multicultural tilt to them. Uh, They all feature... For, for example, uh, together has I would say an almost all uh, minority cast. Yeah. Um, how did you? And and I'll even I'll even add in one we haven't talked about yet called uh, At Last. Yep. Yeah. And 
you know, this, this movie is also close to home, by the way, because I'm the product of an interracial marriage uh, that started in 1972. The, the relationship started right after the loving um, yeah. trial. And uh, for the first time in Tennessee, a black and a person and a white person were able to legally marry. They got married right after that. And so wow. this film, yeah, this film at last uh, is very similar, except it takes place in mid seventies, Mississippi. And uh, you're calling it an interracial Romeo and Juliet story inspired by actual events. So I kind of have a two part question here, which is one, how did, how did you uh, get, what was it? I should say that, that drove you towards these type of stories and drove you towards wanting to tell stories uh, that are more multicultural involve um, um, uh, different ethnicities, different cultures, uh, coming from Mississippi. And then two, uh, can you talk about the actual events that did inspire, uh, at last? Sure. Um, so, I mean, when I, again, when I grew up, I was lucky to be, my parents encouraged me to read everything I could read. You know, I listened to shortwave radio broadcasts cause I was really into jazz and the best jazz shows were radio Moscow and radio Netherlands and voice of America and BBC. So I was listening to these things all the time and I got involved in a lot of different stuff, you know, learning about a lot of stuff because of that and a huge influence on my life. Cause I was really sick when I was a little kid, uh, was this woman named Velma girls who was hired by my parents. We had officially called her our maid, but she was a registered nurse who was from Ohio who married a Mississippi guy and moved down to Mississippi because she was black. She couldn't really work in, a, in most of the hospitals. And so my parents hired her to make sure that I stayed alive. And I had a lot of time with her because I missed a ton of school because I was sick all the time. So Velma and I would sit around all day and talk and read and and, you know, talk about what's going on in the events of the day, because this was really during the peak of a lot of the civil rights movement. And, you know, so I was exposed to that really early on. And the and that became really fascinating to me. Also, in a more bit of later date, you know, more recently, so I'm like, OK, well, there are all these great stories that people aren't telling. So one of the great, you know, adages of Hollywood is do the same thing, just different. Give the audience what they know. But do but do it different. So why shouldn't we be talking about stories about people that have had to overcome incredible obstacles put in their way because of their women or because they're of, of, they're not of the you know predominant race in their country and they are have actively blocked, but yet they still achieve. You know. So what is the drive that pushes someone to be able to do that and to do and we do things that are great in spite of that. So that to me, again, goes back to this, what's a real hero? You know, what's an inspiring story? The kind of, those are the kind of stories I love to see myself and read myself are, you know, where people have had to overcome really incredible things, whatever that, whatever that might be. So as to at last, uh, yeah, I was a white boy on stage, sometimes the only white boy on stage in otherwise all black rhythm and blues funk bands. So this story is based on that experience. And also what might have happened if certain things had happened with a couple of the black girls in my high school that I was pretty close to. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, and the one, one that was, you know, in particular, that was uh, another, her mom was also a teacher. My mom was a teacher in the high school. Her mom was too. And it was like, 
no, there's no way we can keep this thing that quiet. So through like a million gallons of ice cold water on, on the, that thing. But, <laughs> you know, it was like, no, no, no. Because still Mississippi was a little bit worse than Tennessee, especially if you were in the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that would be, we thought we thought Nashville was like where all the liberals were uh, <laughs> so by, by comparison to Mississippi. So it's a... It's, it's a very different kind of place and just recognizing, I thought this would be a really interesting story, if, but again, it's not really exactly what happened. It's more like what could have happened, what might have happened if certain things had progressed in, in certain ways. So it's a, and that was one of a bunch of awards and screenwriting competitions. And it's, uh, it's again, one that I'm pretty, very fond of because it is sort of based on my own experience. And, and because I happen to love early 70s, mid-70s funk R&B music. And so this I call it a music-driven story, not a musical. So it's more like Purple Rain versus La La Land. People don't just break out into song and dance and <laughs> no reason start, you know, doing crazy things, uh, you know, because to express their feelings. This is, you know, really the story is about the friendship that grew between these three guys, three boys, when the schools were formally desegregated. And so all of a sudden, we went from having, I think there was one black kid in our class to having, you know, half the class was, was black kids, half the class was white kids. And we had to learn how to get along really quick. And we did. Actually, you know, the kids that were my age and younger that grew up in the Jackson schools at that point all got along just fine. I mean, I knew if people didn't like me, it wasn't because I was white. It was because they didn't like me. Right. So, you know, you have to live up to yourself, not it really teaches you what Dr. King meant by judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. So, you know, that's, that's important. Yeah, I agree. And I I love that. And there's a trend going on right now in and across the, the spectrum of filmmaking and writers that I'm doing a lot of thinking about, and I'm not sure exactly where I stand. I'm not sure I like it. I know that, but you'll have, uh, I saw recently Lulu Wang who did the farewell, which I loved uh, she uh, had mentioned and had talked about, you know, films being made by white writers and directors and producers that were about Chinese people in that, yeah. and, and, and feeling a little bit like that was uh, an appropriation of, of, of sorts. Um, where do you stand on that? I mean, you're a white guy from Mississippi and you, you tell a lot of stories that cross through Asian and black culture and Hispanic culture and, and other. Um, I, I know I'm doing some thinking about it. Where, where do you stand? Well, I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar actually had a really great opinion piece in The Hollywood Reporter last week saying filmmakers must be free to tell the stories they want. And the Lulu uh, Wong basically was bringing up the fact that there's this Chinese concert pianist uh, who named Long Long, yep. who actually uh, Ron Howard is going to be directing his his life story. Correct. And you know, as I tried to point out, first of all, Lucinda Lulu's uh, reasons why she said that you know they, it shouldn't be him is because well you know this happened Long Long during the Cultural Revolution. Also, which is not true. He actually was born in 1982 after the Cultural Revolution was over. Mm-hmm. And I know I know a lot about Asian culture because, I mean, I literally lived in Japan for 10 days a month for five years. And, and I've been involved with China since 1988. And my partner, life partner and business partner is Chinese. 
So from Beijing. So, you know, I think that a lot of it is that, you know, you have to say, can a, can a writer or a filmmaker actually have the empathy to understand who the character is? And what are the parts of that character that make it uni- that make them universal? Because what we're really looking for is how do we find universality in characters, not just the things that make them completely different from everybody else or how their environment made them different. Yes, you can show that, but it's and it's important to show how that may have shaped their environment, but and how that shaped the person. But I think that ultimately, you know, if if we understand human beings as humans first and foremost, then anybody who has the skill to be empathetic should be able to articulate either on paper or or on the screen how things impact someone else in a human way. So, you know, I think that there's a, a question about whether or not there's a, you know, somebody should be entitled to certain stories just because of their ethnicity. And it's, I think that there's definitely the question of whether or not someone has enough empathy and understanding of another culture, another ethnic group, religious group, whatever, to be able to tell the story well. But if we start using that standard for everybody, then, you know, as far as I know, the writer of Harry Potter wasn't a teenage boy who was going to a school for wizards. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, and, and Shakespeare certainly didn't only write about men. All those characters weren't just, you know, male characters. So I, I take it back to, are you human enough to be able to do this and to have that empathy to do it? Right. So I'm not trying to, for example, together, I'm not trying to tell a black story. I'm telling a universal story. Right. And that's going to happen. Anybody, any family, any ethnicity, any socioeconomic uh, group, the family that I'm telling it about happens to be African-American. They happen to be, middle, upper middle class African-Americans uh, who are very well educated. The two kids that are adults are both very well educated and they're successful in anybody's eyes. So this, but this is a story that happens to be universal. So why does universal have to default to white? And I think that's where the, where some of the issue is. And I think that because people haven't been, had an opportunity to tell a lot of the stories that other groups that are not this dominant culture have sort of been able to see because of that there is a, a desire for people that well this is a story that should be you know directed by a, a black person for example but on the other hand this is my story it's my family story I, and I made the conscious decision to turn the family into African-American because there is a whole in the movie in the feature there's a whole conflict that comes up because there's a, a Caucasian couple couple who, where the husband has to go into the same nursing home where the African-American couple's wife is, you know, the mom is, and a relationship develops between the healthy spouses. One guy, the guy is black and the, and the woman is white, and they become friends, become really close friends, and it, and it causes discomfort amongst people around them and amongst in society. So I wanted to add that conflict there. That's the whole, you know, get your character out on a limb over a cliff the branches breaking and start throwing rocks at them. Sure. So that's the, that's why I did that. And it's like, and you know, this movie, the short screen at the Martha's Vineyard African American film festival and a bunch of other places. And every single time when 
they would call the filmmakers up. And you can imagine at, at Martha's Vineyard, I was the only white person in the audience. And so they called up the filmmakers and they called up me and, and I brought Gene up as well, who is obviously Chinese. And you can see like people are going, what the hell is that? But it moved people. I mean, there were people who were crying in the, in the audience. And I remember afterwards, these two black women came up and they said, we were way up in the back. And we're like, well, you know, he might be black or maybe he's adopted. You know? <laughs> like, okay. Well, so, it's, it's, it's interesting um, because I, I think what Lulu's talking about, Lulu Wang is, is talking about culture, uh, not necessarily have you lived that, that life. But, but I look at it like this, you know, I uh, am biracial and society has always treated me like a black man, for better yeah. or worse. Yeah. But That's my black awful. friends, <laughs> right, my black friends have always said, hey, you talk white. So yeah. what is the what is the limit at which I can tell a story? And so it, the premise seems to fall apart uh, when, when you look at it that way. Right. And that's yeah. so I think I'm I'm pretty aligned with with you on that. Um, I, I, you mentioned something earlier and I have to go back to it. You talked about putting yourself through high school and college by being a semi pro a musician. Uh, I I play piano myself and, and that feels close to my heart. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, this is the seventies. You should have been listening to Eric Clapton and, and Jimi Hendrix and, and all these great musicians. Instead, you, you fell into jazz. How did that happen? I just loved the music. I mean, I started off on piano and I happened to whatever reasons jazz just really appealed to me. And then things that evolved out of jazz, particularly rhythm and blues and funk were things I just really enjoyed. I was, and I started playing horn. It's, you know, I was mainly a trombone player and I started that when I was in junior high school and was really attracted to horn driven uh, music whether horn driven rock like Chicago or horn driven R and B funk like earth, wind and fire and tower of power. Those are the things that really got me moving. But the, uh, but that was, that was the thing. I mean, so that just really was fun music to listen to and fun music to play. So that was sort of what my, you know, inspiration for getting into that happened to be. Do you ever still consider doing it? Have you hung up the keys or do you whip them out every now and then and go for it? I sold my horns when I went to, when I finally went to, was in in my MBA program, because if you don't practice a brass instrument or woodwind instrument every day, you know, you lose your lip. You just can't. It just doesn't sound right. You can't hit the notes, and then all of a sudden, you're you have to you're practicing four to six hours a day again, and it's especially hard if you know what you used to could do, and then you want to get back at least to that level again. So you're completely. It's an all-consuming mistress music, and since I couldn't afford that mistress at the time, so. right? But do you have you have you thought about? doing it again or at any point i know you jumped into for example storytelling at 52 which is just amazing to me and proof that there's no time limit on your inspiration and your talent um or have or do you think you've moved on from that love of music in terms of being a player of it and a writer of it for forever yeah i mean i i may i might do it again one day but right now i'm so you know my current all-consuming mistress is movies and, and writing and movies and TV. So that's, I can't really do both. So I, I want to write and direct. And so if I'm doing that, I can't really 
put the focus I would want to put on music. Right. So, no, I totally get I've got that. A lot to learn, so much to learn, and so much to do <laughs> on the film and, and TV side of things, and it's it's really tough, you know, to to do that. So, and I'm very involved in all the production aspect of it as well, in terms of raising money and trying to get our, you know, you know, the money in and distribution and all stuff. So it, it's a very all-encompassing activity. 100% true. And um, we this this podcast goes out to a lot of independent filmmakers and independent creatives. I think the difference with us is, you know, we don't just focus on screenwriters or directors, but right. all the creatives that live in the independent world and uh, want to be part of filmmaking. You've lived, as you mentioned, in Japan 10 days out of every every month for five years, but you've also lived in Beijing and Chicago, London, Napa Valley, Silicon Valley, um, Los Angeles. What, what advice can you bring back to the independent creative and independent film creative about filmmaking for other markets that, that you wouldn't really quite get just by being here or or have only lived here in in the U S yeah, I think that people in the U.S. get really hung up on the sort of tentpole concept, as we, you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and they think that that's the only kind of movies there are, and that's not. That's not the case. Stories are great stories are great stories. And I think that for people who are looking to figure out how to make stories, make stories that are human stories, okay? People want to actually see stories, whether it's a drama or a comedy or whatever. They want to see something where they can relate to the person. And unfortunately, since I have no superpowers, I wouldn't even know what superpower I'd want if you know I had to choose from them. I mean, that's not something I know how to really write in that way. And I mean, of course, there's some great superhero movies that have real humanity to them. I, you know, use the example of Iron Man, which I thought was great in terms of actually bringing humanity to a character like that and having a story that actually had some groundedness to it. And I think that if you look overseas, you know, those movies do do well overseas as well. And uh, certainly big action movies, spectaculars do well. But if you go all the way back 2,500 years ago, this guy named uh, Aristotle wrote this little book called Poetics. And he, as he said that, he said, uh, spectacle, spectacle is for the masses. And drama is, effectively drama is for people who think. So if you think about it, at that time it was on the stage. The, and the, the, the more dramatic, when he said drama, he meant also comedy that was dramatically, uh, had dramatic underpinnings. And spectacle would be, they would have, you know, fire pots go off on stage and do, you know, big people marching around on stage doing stuff like that. And I think that's still kind of true. So, I'm, you know, so nothing wrong with having a great popcorn movie. I mean, this all great stuff. But if you're an independent person, the likelihood of you're going being able to get involved with the making of a movie like that is extraordinarily small. You know, you're not going to have any control over that. The likelihood of you getting hired to write a Marvel movie or, you know, the next Game of Thrones, whatever, is going to is going to be super, super small. So you got to think, what is it you can actually do yourself that you can actually drive things forward? And I encourage people, everybody who's a writer to, in trying to do screenwriting, go off and try to make, make a movie, make a short movie. I mean, there are great cameras on your iPhone, and there are people that have made feature films using iPhone cameras only. So you can do it. 
and learning how to think about how your you know thing, shots are set up and how action happens between actors and how you need to film that to get that across and how to both say the right things on the page and let the actors do their thing. And I don't mean improvisation per se. I mean, to be able to act out things without saying things, the, you know, the actual physical movements that actors use to demonstrate something that that's great experience and it'll help you write better. And one of the first things they said at UCLA is that you want to learn how to, how to write for actors, go take an acting class, learn how, that works and what the craft of acting is. And, you know, so you're not overwriting for the actors and telling them every little thing to do. And they raise their eyebrows, they look, you know, you know, askance at somebody, you know, it's a bit more about how to make sure that you're giving the actors enough so they can actually create the character that you're trying to articulate and be able to get that either on the stage or up on the screen. Yes. I think that's, you know, those kinds of things are important to do. And, you know, you go back to, you asked me earlier about the music thing. One of the reasons I love film and is that you do have music involved. And I was very involved with the music on the short film together. A lot of my stories also, of course, have, have a lot of music in them. So I'm bringing that back in and I enjoy that aspect of the storytelling, the way that you can actually use all of these aspects of the arts to draw people into a story and have a fairly immersive experience potentially for your audience. That to me is a lot of fun and it's very fulfilling to be able to do that. You mentioned earlier that screenwriting is uh, easy and that may have been tongue in cheek, but I have noticed a correlation between uh, auteur screenwriters and filmmakers uh, genius screenwriters and, and and filmmakers, people who are highly technical and creative, also being very studious. And I, I look at you and I say, okay, here's a guy who was playing jazz in high school, has a BA from Mississippi, an MBA from Kellogg School at Northwestern University, uh, went to UCLA uh, for screenwriting. Um, and now we have... Uh, the movie industry turned upside down by COVID-19 and potentially screenwriting changing forever. You know, there used to be a rule in screenwriting where something needed to happen on page three and then there needed to be a major plot turn on page 10. But now the movies were seeing something happens in the first 30 seconds. And there's a lot of talk about feature films not needing to be two hours anymore, but maybe an hour and 15 minutes. What are your thoughts on that? And will that be an easy transition for you? Or, or what are you thinking in terms of how you would change your own writing? Um, well, a lot of my stuff that I do is I, I tend to focus on how can I tell the story in less than two hours? And if I can get it in at 90 minutes, great. Fantastic. I mean, I, you don't need to stretch things out beyond what is necessary to tell the story. I think stories fill the time that are necessary to tell the story, but you need to be realistic also about, you know, well, what kind of, you know, how, how long of a story can it really be? And if it's longer than two hours, maybe it needs to be a mini series or maybe it needs to be an episodic television, you know, with or serialized television. I mean, there's a, let's just call that long form, you know, uh, film, if you would. So, there's great opportunities for that. So if you've got more than you can tell in a, in two hours, then 
you know, think about how you need to think about a different format for that. I mean, people aren't going to sit through three hours of Lawrence of Arabia anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, those films used to have intermissions in the middle of them. You know, you, so people could actually go to the bathroom and get and get concessions. So it's a, and I remember those. So, and I love them. They're great. But, you know, there's probably better ways to tell certain stories that fit better with a longer form format than a typical 90 minute to 100 minute movie. Do you think that the movies have to shorten up to compete with streaming's sort of one hour dramas? Yeah, I actually do. And I think that because I think you're going to I think it'll be a handful of movies. It will still be these big spectacle movies that you're going to want to see on a gigantic screen. But I think most people have become very accustomed to saying, you know, I can watch a great movie at home on my high definition TV set. And if I have a decent sound bar, the sound's going to be pretty good. And I don't have to worry about other people sitting right behind me yakking throughout the entire movie or somebody in front of me, you know, texting during the middle of the movie. And so the light from their screen distracts me from what's going on on the big screen, which, you know, not to mention the whole issue with, you know, there's, we're in a pandemic and people are worried about being exposed to, you know, pandemic viruses in big groups, enclosed in group settings. Right. So, and I've got no problem with, with that. And look, I watched Lawrence of Arabia at home recently on my, you know, very nice 4k TV and have, you know, it's not a super expensive one. I mean, it's just like a regular, uh, like a Samsung TV, not, not with an OLED TV and had a very inexpensive sound bar. You know, and I saw that movie in the theaters too, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a great movie either way because the story pulls you in. Sure. Is it even more fantastic when you see the, you know, the sun rising up over the desert and Lawrence and this, uh, Bedouin uh, little dots on the, on camels coming across the sands. Yeah. That's, that's pretty spectacular. And you know, on a big screen or when the, you see the, the smokestacks of a ship going through the Suez canal, you think you're in the middle of the desert and all of a sudden on the side of the sand, sand hill, there's these, what's clearly a ship going across. I mean, those are very cool moments, but you don't necessarily have to be in a darkened theater on showing on a big gigantic screen with a hundred other people watching at the same time to get the experience. So maybe that's because I'm coming at this new, I'm not, you know, I didn't come at it from the perspective of a Steven Spielberg or, you know, any of these guys that came up on during the film era. I mean, I've, I've never shot on film. I shoot still photography on film and I'm quite clear that I love that. But, the, but at the same time, I don't, from an actual moving picture standpoint, to me, everything is, is digital. So, and I'm very happy with that. That's wonderful. And we always say story is king and, uh, and, and then we always say, you know, uh, deer hunter could not come out today. (laughs) I mean, and that's, and that's the thing. I mean, you've got to, you've got to look at this. Can, can you tell a story and engage your audience? Do people want to be engaged? People actually really want to be engaged in stories and with, Sure, visual spectaculars are cool, but if there's no story underlying it, you get bored. And I think that's happened with a lot of the big spectacle, big tentpole uh, superhero movies, unfortunately, is that it's like we have to get bigger and bigger spectacles and stunts 
So when Fast and Furious 27 comes out, God only knows what they're going to be doing, jumping off the moon or something with their doom, with their moon buggies. And it's, you know, that there's only so much of that you can take and your, your mind gets numb to it at a certain point. And it's so. very true. We, um, the, the Michael Bay effect, uh, we, we, yeah. it, we get sent uh, budgets for films and we do advisory producing. We being Bonsai Creative, me and my partner, Nick. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we noticed really early on was that they would always lack line items for branding and marketing. Uh, yeah. And we would, for independent films specifically, and we would say, well, how are they planning on, recouping the funds for this. And, and and in 2017, you had a feature film named Gray Lady, yep. which was a thriller starring Eric Dane, Natalie Z, and Amy Madigan, actually, who is Oscar nominated. And you were uh, heading up the marketing and branding push for that. And you utilized uh, exclusively social media marketing uh, because of the limited budget, you did right. have theatrical release on this in about 25, uh, 12 cities and about, uh, uh, 25 theaters. Yeah. And so with that being such a big sort of tilt to where we come from and how we communicate to this audience, talk to us about your approach with gray lady and how you found success and, and what you found to be an obstacle and, and maybe even what you would do today if you had to do it over. Right. So if I were to do it, we came in pretty late on that project. I mean, the project was already well underway and we helped raise finishing funds for that. And so, and then we got a, so we got a company co-production in association with Beacon Pictures and Beacon Pictures is Army at Bernstein and he wrote Air Force One, he wrote The Commitments. I mean, I'm not going to Friday to car wash and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, the guy is amazing. And, and Beacon Pictures has done a bunch of TV stuff. They did Castle, was, was their TV show that they did. And this was a, we got introduced to the writer-director, John Shea, who is a very, pretty famous character actor. He was one of the, he was one of the three guys that actually brought in to screen test for Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it was he and uh, uh, the guy who played Magnum, uh, Tom Selleck, and uh, John Shea. So that was the, you know, so he was part of that, but he was a pretty well-known character actor and uh, been in a bunch of stuff. And then he started to write more and he wrote this story that was set on Nantucket because he lives on Nantucket. And, you know, and Army and Bernstein has a place on Nantucket. So all these people that were Nantucketites, including also Andres Bartoyak, who also was living on Nantucket at the time, were involved in creating this movie. Let's 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 make a movie on Nantucket, right? And so it's an interesting story um, that was, you know, John likes to call it a romantic thriller, murder thriller, and it's and it was good. It was set in an interesting place that people had never seen on film before, and with an interesting little subculture of Nantucket itself. So there was a potential there, and you had Eric Dane as a pretty well-known star. This was while he was doing Last Ship, was just starting. So the um, so the concept was when they, they went and made this movie and art and honestly Beacon had always had an output deal before with you know some studio came and distributed it for them. But they, they didn't have that for this. So we had to figure out how are we gonna make this work? And they didn't think about it until really too late. 
and they did, we had to go out and help raise some additional money for PNA, and they actually had to be released in at least 10 cities in North America to fulfill the contract that they had with Anchor Bay, which was then owned by Stars. And so we had very little money to do it, and you know, you have such a limited budget, you, you can't just put up uh, billboards and posters in, in a bunch of cities. You know, it, would, it would have wiped out our budget in only one city. Mm-hmm. So since I came from the Silicon Valley world and had come from a marketing background, I said, look, the only way we're going to, be able to do this is to, is to put all of our money into social media marketing. And so we actually created a whole marketing plan based around that, that would reach out to various, and we tried various different things. So it's the great thing about social media marketing is you can try different things. And this was you know, paid Facebook advertising, basically, and some on YouTube, uh, YouTube roll-on ads. And what we found out pretty quickly after the testing was, you know, that the only thing that was really going to drive the movie in terms of social media at that point in a, any kind of a big way was Eric Dane. Mm. And, and we thought, well, maybe Eric Dane was the last ship. People, there'll be some people who want that. Nope. The only thing that people cared about were basically these were basically women that were 25 to 55 years old who were still grieving over the fact that Dr. McSteamy was killed. <laughs> so it's like, okay, fine. We can, we can find that group and we can target those people. And, you know, it ended up doing quite well in terms of the marketing campaign uh, because we got 18 and a half million, uh, you know, views and got one and a half million minutes or something like that of actual video time that people were watching stuff to the point where, Lionsgate actually had responsibility for the home entertainment release and international release, and they didn't spend another dime on it. And the we ended up being, I think, a top twenty for Lionsgate you know, performer in the month of its uh, home entertainment release. So it's a you know the theatrical release did what it was supposed to do. It was a marketing uh, play for the home entertainment release. So what would we do different today is, and we are going to do this with the feature version together is identify the audiences that are going to be the right audiences for the movie way in advance, which we already have. We know who the sort of the big broad audiences are, and then you utilize stuff to help build engagement with those audiences, probably before we ever shoot a single frame. And then you know, also use stuff while we're shooting to help build in continue to build interest and audience. So the point at which it's launched, however it is launched, whether it's a, a home entertainment release or a streaming release, or it's a theatrical release, we'll have an audience that is identified and already be clamoring to see this. And I think that you're going to see more and more of this kind of release pattern where it's a hybrid release pattern because there are, for especially for independent films, I mean, people think that the be-all and end-all is to be a theatrical release. I mean, it's nice, it's glorious, but it's not really the way to make money, ultimately. So it's a, you have to think about how are you going to get money back to your investors? And, you know, this is, a, this is show business, not show art. So, you know, I want to make sure that our investors have a really solid shot of getting not just their money back, but getting a return above and beyond that. And us too. I mean, we're, we're ultimately investors in these movies too. And we have, you know, points on the, on the projects and that's where our ultimately big success is going to come from a financial side. So to me, if we don't have a, a reasonable financial success, meaning investors at least get their money paid back, 
I'm not going to be happy. Uh, even if we win a bunch of awards on stuff, it's like, uh, okay. On the other hand, if it's something, all it is, is just purely uh, financial success. It's a huge financial success, but people don't think it's that great. I'm also going to be unhappy. So it's a really interesting fine balance that we have to work with in independent creativity, the between creating art versus creating something that is going to have a financial return. So we have to remember we are in show business. Right. Or I think it was Irving Gazoff said that show business is 5% show, 95% business. <laughs> right. The, I always like to say the business of film instead yeah, of uh, exactly. show business. So yeah, we are in business. It's, and again, it's, it's definitely business, not art that has the drives. If you want to do, you might get one project done that's art, but you'll, if it's not, doesn't have a business behind it, then you're not going to ever get a chance to do another one. Right. And that, that brings up the next big thing I want to talk to you about because, uh, you could go out onto the streets where you are right now and survey a hundred independent filmmakers and 99 of those would come back and say, my biggest obstacle is financing and you having, and, and your, uh, and Gene, uh, your partner in crime there, um, having a background in venture capital and, and economics and funding, what would you say is the right mix for filmmaker to and and producers, film, uh, indie producers to to try to accomplish uh, to get private equity funding and debt or debt financing or uh, foreign pre sales or any of those things. Well, I mean, look, it's the, the hardest thing about this business is finance. That's absolutely the hardest thing, and it's hard for a number of reasons. Not the least, not the least of which is that a lot of people, investors, have been burned on film investments in the past and people all they hear are these horror stories oh it's a big black hole to put money into it and don't know where it went and there's a lot of that and there's a lot of fraudsters that are out there who are running around claiming to have money and don't and trying to insinuate themselves into the process because there is a lot of money to be made in film and in television and so they try to attach themselves into this in ways that are really not particularly you know, useful to anything other than to themselves. So I've never seen a business that has so many sort of sketchy characters around the periphery and in the middle of it. Then we just don't work that way in Silicon Valley. And part of it is because this is so subjective. I mean, it, this is the art part of the film industry is that, you know, it's, you don't know what good is when <laughs> said that nobody knows what good is and how are you going how are you going to know whether something is going to be a money maker or not you can't and it's just it's just very very difficult unless you're doing the same movie over and over again you know like you know fast and furious whatever so the i think that that's where and that's part of the reason why the studios have defaulted to you know the remix of the same thing or you know episode 28 of whatever it is or things that they say based on IP, meaning in this case, you know, a book that was successful. Oh, well, there's an audience for it. And, and I get it. But unfortunately, I think it's taken away a lot of the artistic opportunities for independent creatives to create something new and different and, and, to, and to do that. But it all comes down to, do you have the money? If you have money to go make a film, nobody's going to stop you. Uh, it's you can you can make it happen, but it's expensive to make movies. 
And it's, it's not easy to raise that funding, particularly if you've never done it before and if you don't have a track record of success behind you. So you need to associate yourself with other people who do have that track record of success if you can and you know, sort of ride along on that. So, which is what we did with Great Lady. And you know, there was certainly what I'm doing with together is making sure that the team that I have behind the camera is as qualified as possible. So the investors look at this and said, okay, well, even if Tony turns out to be an idiot, these other people are gonna make sure <laughs> off the rails. And you know, that's it's really important. <laughs> so I and you that. you're amazing what you'll learn from those people who actually will make sure you don't go off the rails. I mean, so every aspiring filmmaker, and I and I, I really encourage everybody who's a, who thinks of themselves as trying to be a screenwriter to start thinking of yourself as a filmmaker, not as a, just a screenwriter, not because ultimately the power on film goes to writer directors. The directors are considered way too much considered to be gods in film. And, you know, I try to tell people, I don't really buy into that. I mean, I don't think, I don't view the director as the auteur, the author of a film, unless they wrote it and directed it and probably edited it and maybe were behind the lens of the camera, you know? So there's only about one, one or two people who can actually do that. And, you know, Roma was already made. So there you go. Uh, so it, it's a, it is definitely a group effort. You have it's a collaborative effort, and uh, people should look up what David Mamet's uh, uh, thing about screenwriting is in Hollywood. He said screenwriting is a collective effort. Prepare to bend over. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier, and I just have a few more questions. You've uh, this has been so fun, Tony, and uh, so informative and so valuable. I'm uh, fun too. I, I, I you know, and I, I'm from Mississippi. We love to talk, man. <laughs> That's what they say about us Tennesseans as well. We well at, at, at least about this Tennessee. Around to swap lies. <laughs> exactly. And speaking of speaking of storytelling, uh, you you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia. You mentioned David Mamet. I'm curious, what creatives do you most admire and and want to emulate? Who who moves the needle for you? And what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart? Well, I mean, I did mention, you know, David Lean because his big movies were just amazing. I mean, they, they really took us into a world that we didn't know and gave us and let us see things. Whether it's Bridge on the River Kwai or Dr. Shivago or Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, this was amazing. At the same time, there's a movie a lot of people don't really know and think about much that he did called um, Brief Encounter. And it's, it's basically a dramatic love story. Uh, forbidden love that happens mostly in just a handful of locations. And that movie is fantastic because it's a story. It's a great story and it wraps you in. So I really admire that as uh, because he could, he could do very smaller movies and also these gigantic, big spectaculars that are just amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love Ridley Scott in terms of, again, more of the spectacular kind of stuff. And, and I loved, you know, I, I happen to like sci-fi. I don't write much sci-fi. I have a good sci-fi story, but there's, but there's a, but it's, it's really, but those are more story based than spectacle based. So the original Blade Runner, the story was amazing. Right. And that was really what drew me in as well as the visuals that he created. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of computer generated graphics at that time. So this stuff was 
pretty amazing in terms of looking at that, watching that on the screen. And when I when it came out, I was going, "Wow, this is just amazing! This is really cool!" It brought me yeah. into that world. So, on the other hand, I like a lot of the stuff that Alexander Payne does. I like a lot of the stuff that Woody Allen does. I mean, Woody Allen has could be argued that he makes the same movie over and over again, but it's a it's a it's a world that he knows very well, and there's an audience for it. So all he has to do is he just sells to you know New Yorkers on the Upper East and West Sides, then you know that's that's in a couple of the suburbs in New York, then that's all good, you know, because he knows he can make these movies that people will go to see. Yeah, and you know he. But he's also one of the things I really admire about him is he and Clint Eastwood, for example, they use the same team over and over and over again. So you build up a shorthand for how you work in terms of people behind the camera. And I think that's a really critical factor. It's one that we saw work very successfully in Silicon Valley. And it's one where, you know, that's what we try to to do here. So the two shorts we've made, we've had almost exactly the same team on both of them. Yeah. And. Yes, and I make sure I tell everybody, hey, if you need, if you see something's going wrong, come and tell me, or tell Gene, you know, who's on the set, the producer, tell somebody and make sure we don't go off the rails. I expect all you guys to step up your game. I expect the department heads to be really involved in the critical decisions that are being made. I mean. You know, let the cinematographer help tell me why he thinks you know we should use this lens and this angle to get this coverage that we need. And I, I want my editor to be telling me, you know, hey, look, you know, in this particular scene, you're going to need to get coverage here, here, and here for me to cut it together in the right way. And I think that's really important. So I think one of the things that people who've worked with us have liked is that we are no drama sets. You know, there's no screaming, there's no yelling, there's no histrionics. You know, there's no, you know, the director says something and everybody has to has to be quaking in their boots about stuff. You know, we, we're pretty relaxed and we make it happen, but we keep a tight set and we're, you know, everything we've ever done, we've so far, knock on wood, has come in on time and at budget. Yeah. And I, that's because of good planning ahead of time and being able to make decisions quickly. Good judgment you know, is, is the key to all good investments. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to make sure you don't just keep on shooting stuff over and over again, because do you, you know, we're never going to get 100 percent. The likelihood that, that anything that I make or anybody else is going to be win the, the Oscar for best picture and be hailed as the greatest movie ever made is relatively low. I mean, we're not making we're not doing the Sistine Chapel here, guys. We're trying to make something that is a product that people are going to like, that people are going to enjoy, who will be paid either by actual paying money or with their time to actually watch. And that has value. It doesn't have it doesn't have to be perfection. It doesn't mean you can always go, oh, we'll fix it in post. It means you have to plan it out the right way and make sure you're doing it as efficiently as possible. That's yeah. my little soapbox there. I love that. And I really agree with it. I know that uh, my, my partner in crime here, Nick, Nicholas Bugs agrees with that as well. We always want to develop teams of filmmakers that we know can execute and producers that we know can execute and just keep making things with them. It's, it's, I think it's the, it's the sort of the credo of the long-term player, you know, a short-term player doesn't care who they work with, but I think a long-term player wants to keep playing games with the same people over the long term. And, you know, we just interviewed uh, Rashina Nash, who's a writer for Raven's home on Disney. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 
she had mentioned a very something very similar to what you just said, which is that she at one time was just a PA, I believe, or, or was in costume design or something, but she was so interested in the project, she had noticed a flaw in the story yep. and was very nervous. She, she This wasn't her place. She wasn't even supposed to have access to the story, I think. But she went with her gut, told the producer. The producer said, you just saved us half a million dollars or something like that. And it launched her career because then they knew they could trust her and she knew her stuff. And, and it's so wonderful to hear stories like that and to hear you validated is, is great. Um, Tony, tell us where we can find you, uh, on social media or on the internet where we can see some of your work. On social media, I'm at AW Tony Scott. I had to take up my formal name after I came to Hollywood because the other Tony Scott who, you know, passed away really very shortly after I came down here, it used to give me pretty good reservations at restaurants, but, uh, unfortunately after that happened, that doesn't help me anymore. Right. So the, uh, I've got all sorts of great stories about that. When I showed up, I said, I'm Tony Scott. And they're like, look at me like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm really Tony Scott. So um, the AW is Anthony Wayne. So I just use my formal name initials because the only person who called me Anthony was my mom when she was really mad at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, like, you know, Anthony, you better go get me a switch. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, so anyway, I'm AW Tony Scott on Facebook. You can find us at broadvision at bvpictures.com. Mm-hmm. So like broad vision beat boy victor pictures all one word dot com um and i'm on linkedin as is gene and gene's also on facebook so you can find us there and then broad vision pictures has a has a uh facebook page and as does the as does together and you can also find links to our newest little satiric short called representation matters question mark on the on the, on those and you can uh, there's a way to watch the the uh, a link to uh, the film on the Nuku Fest because they're showing it online there so you can actually take a link on there and go watch it and if somebody really wants to watch together if you there are a couple of um, to the short there are a couple of uh, film festivals that I think have been showing it online but if you reach out to me I will be happy to send you a link. That's awesome. And I think for everyone listening, it's very worthwhile. You're, you're following someone who is ascending right now and doing great things, has already won many, many awards, been accepted to many, many festivals, and has already gone through a feature film process that had a, a small, but hey, it was a theatrical run. Uh, just to be clear, we've mentioned Gene a few times. I'm going to butcher this, but you tell me if I'm getting close. Is it Gene Gwen Sue? Gene Ching. Gene Ching. Uh, yeah, Chinese, Chinese, Chinese is, a, is with the way the Q is pronounced. So Gene, Q-I-N-G, so it's pronounced Ching. Gene Ching Su. Her, her Chinese name is Su Ching. Uh, Su is her family name. Which, interestingly enough, when I went to China the first time, way before I met her, they, you know, they give people Chinese names. And the Chinese character that they use to, from Scott is the same as the character for Su for her family name. Oh. So we were clearly destined to, to know one another. That's, that's fantastic. And she's fascinating. And the fact that, that she got hired for a job I, I was interviewing for, they hired her <laughs> instead of me. Gotcha. I still hold that against her. 
<laughs> That's great. And yeah, she's definitely worth checking out. And uh, one day, hopefully, I can have a conversation with her on this very podcast as well yeah. and, and turn the tables on her a little bit. I'll leave she's- you with this, with, with this Tony. Uh, you actually had Richard Roundtree in your house, yeah. Shaft himself. Yeah. In, in my house, maybe. Yeah, which is pretty fantastic. You guys sip Japanese whiskey together. We're a fan of whiskey on this podcast. Which Japanese whiskey did you serve? Uh, it was a Nikko. Spell that? Nikko, N-I-K-K-O. Ah, uh, got it. Okay, got it. Can we, can, we, can we all get that? Is that common enough to just go get? I haven't had many Japanese whiskeys. I mean, you're probably not going to find it just at the regular liquor store, but there are places that do uh, that do sell sell that. So Nico whiskey is you know there. There's also some really good ones from Suntory, but it's from uh, there's Nika N I K K A is the is the actual um, is actually the um, uh, distillery, and uh, so they have one that's from the barrel that is actually pretty pretty tasty. And that's what I had because Shaft was hoping for a, a bourbon, and I didn't have a good bourbon on hand, so I said, "How about a How about a Japanese whiskey? Will that do?" And it's like, "Yeah." So there you go, damn right. <laughs> so all my, all, all my all my friends from high school, especially all the girls, were like, "Oh my god, you had Shaft in your house?" It's like, "Yeah, I'm cool, baby. Why didn't you pay attention to me when I was in high school?" <laughs> I encourage anyone who hasn't done it to go watch a Shaft movie, especially some of those original ones. Not well, the original ones, right? Right, I mean, and uh, yeah, the reason why uh, he was there is because HBO was doing a, a documentary about Gordon Parks, mm-hmm. uh, really famous black uh, photographer. He was the first black fashion photographer, and he became a director, film director, and he was the guy who directed Shaft. And so they were interviewing these folks that were you know, of who were involved with Gordon Parks. And, and so they were, they, they, we had friends that were involved with that. And so I said, sure, you can use our house to film, you know, an interview. And so the guy showed up a little early and cause said, Oh, where, where are you coming? Well, we got back, we got from Newport beach faster than we thought. Oh, who are you interviewing? Oh, we were, we're interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, cool. Well, who are you interviewing here? Uh, Richard Browntree. I'm like, no, get the hell out of here. Shaft gonna be in my house. All right. Yeah, it's it's so it's so cool. It's such a cool story. It's definitely like a bucket list kind of thing. And uh is is that documentary available to watch now? I'm not sure if it's out yet on HBO or not. HBO HBO Films was making it, so I'm not sure if the Gordon Parks documentary is out. But if it is, when you see Richard Roundtree, that was at my house. I will take a look for that, and I think now would be a perfect time in the zeitgeist to release it. Um, you, you've been so great, so informative, and so uh, giving of, of information and of your story. Uh, we've all had a, a weird year here in entertainment and in film. What uh, parting thoughts do you have for this audience? Guys, you know, just – and by I say guys, I'm using that generically, please. I'm not I – mean, actually, most of the people I work with are women – Go out and do things. Don't stop. You know, go out and make your film. Go, go make something. You know, take something that you can, you can actually make that call it your own and show people and then keep on and then go and rinse and repeat, right? I mean, that's all you can do. And I, you know, this is not going to kill the entire entertainment industry. People have wanted to be entertained since the days of the cavemen sitting around fires. 
with people bragging about how they brought down the uh, the big uh, elk. The people want to hear stories, and we have an opportunity to actually inform and entertain people. And if we can do that, that's great. I love it, Tony. Thank you so much, man. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And if we can ever help anything in the future, please let me know. I will. Hopefully, we'll be out and about uh, in LA. Hopefully, I'll get to see you then. We'd and love to. Uh, uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. All right. Talk All right, Tony. Be good. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.